And that fear that resides into me right up until that bell rings. The minute that bell rings, now I'm confident. The bell rings, now it's time to go. It's the build-up of the camp, the weigh-in, the travelling in an airport, hungry. If you can manage your emotions in that, you're psychologically getting stronger, but that's something that compounds in every single fight. Uh, I think that all these actions of travelling and deprivation and going to a different country, different food, different language, still having to compete at your highest level, it's all banked. It's all banked and compounded to the next one and the next one. And if you can keep going in that sport to the next level, the next stage, you're always going to get better. Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. And I'm your host, John O'Regan. Today I'm joined by Mark Hasley from Champion Martial Arts on the Longboy Road. Mark is a former K1 Pro World Champion. He has numerous IMC Pro Toy Boxing Championship titles and amongst other things he also has a couple of titles in the ITU which is the Irish Taekwondo Union. Outside of the martial arts Mark has studied sports science and human performance with DCU. He studied sports therapy with Crumlin College and most interestingly he studied sports science in the Kyunghee University in Seoul, Korea. Now I'll get back to that in a few minutes. Just stepping back a few years Mark started his martial arts training at the age of 13 and one of his coaches noticed that he had a talent for the sport and after attending some high performance training camps as he got a bit older around the world in places from Iran to Las Vegas he then had his sights set on the 2008 Beijing Olympics. He went to Olympic selections and was 8 years in training for the Beijing Olympics. After receiving a sports grant and travel grant he decided that the best way to invest in his training and improve his chance of, of competing in the Olympics was to try and relocate to Korea, which is the spiritual home of Taekwondo and it's the national sport. He applied successfully for a scholarship to a university in Seoul and was fortunate enough to be accepted into Kyung Hee University. So we'll start the interview there. How was Kyung Hee University? Yeah, it was. Um, it was an international program and there was a selection of European high-performance athletes picked, so some from Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and one from Ireland, so I was selected. And I literally was told I had it. I had to apply for it through my national and government body. It got accepted, and then the next thing I knew, I'm sitting in an airport in Dublin, then I'm in Frankfurt, and then I'm on a long-haul flight and getting picked up from Seoul. So I think it happened in the blink of an eye. I didn't have time to think about it, um, but I just remember being excited uh, about just taking that journey. And what age were you when you went to Seoul? God, we're going back now. So I'm 38 now. I would have been, I think it was late teens or 20. Um, fairly young, but I kind of felt, um, going into the unknown, I felt confident because I'd kind of been trialed and tested through competition um, before then. Um, so I definitely had that mindset of taking on a challenge. Now, just out of curiosity, why would a university in Seoul give a scholarship to somebody from Ireland? Like, yeah. What benefit is it to them? So as you mentioned, in Korea, their national sport is Olympic Taekwondo or WTF Taekwondo, and this is obviously South Korea. So it's their national sport. Um, they would get grants and give grants 
uh, to try push their sport as much as they can across the world. And this partnership program was developed for high performance men and women that had potential to possibly qualify for the Olympics or to a European or World Championships, but they had to be endorsed by their national governing body. So I was fortunate enough to fall into them categories at that particular time. Um, so when I applied through the European uh, Taekwondo Union, the ETU at the time, um, they reckoned I had qualified and I ticked a lot of boxes. I was over the moon. Um, so it was really trying to push their sport and it was a, a PR thing and an education but it was solely a, a, a high-performance camp. And then what happened? How long were you in Korea and what happened with the Olympics? So when in Korea, I was over there a couple of times. Um, it was a full scholarship, so I stayed over there for a couple of months. I think it was nearly five, six months and lived on campus and we trained. It was kind of how you imagine you see these American movies where you see like the jock training uh, but he doesn't have to do much college work. Well, this was a little bit different. I thought it was going to be something like that, where we train five, six hours a day in high performance camp. But they actually stood to their word. We had to actually academically study in the evening. So every evening, uh, after about six hours of physical training, trying to stay awake from 6 p.m. till 9, 10 p.m., um, we had to do different topics, had to learn how to speak Korean, write Korean. Uh, we touched on sports science, specifically coming from the taekwondo uh, end, so mechanics of movement specific to the sport, which was great. But again, you were just so tired. But it, as I said, like even getting going over there, you know, I was in the mindset that it was a challenge and I was used to accepting challenges. So me trying to keep awake, I was still feeling, I remember, I still f can go back and feel that feeling right now. Um and I just had to get through it. Like, it was as tough as training. The study, the training, and we had to get an academic test at the end of it to pass the program. Um, then from there, I suppose I came back from Korea and um, I had to go, I think it was the Austrian International Open. Then it was quite difficult. It, you, you had to fight. You could be competing and fighting full contact and fighting maybe three, four, five matches in one day. So the likelihood of injury was massive and soft tissue injury was huge. And... My first competition after this camp was Austria, and I think I placed third. Uh, I think I lost to Iran in the semi-final. Uh, I wasn't happy that I didn't get gold, but when we sat down and analysed it afterwards, myself and my coach, uh, and now I can look back and be happy with the performance. So that was the Austrian Open. Uh, and then we were on the path then to try to qualify for the Olympics. Um, Very difficult. I got selected to go. Usually in sports, you get picked to either go to the European Olympic qualification or or the World Olympic qualification. I got selected by my national government body to go to both. So the World Olympic qualification, I think, was in Azerbaijan, in Baku. Uh, so I went there. Fascinating to see, especially when you haven't travelled um, to places that the culture is so kind of diverse and different to our own. Uh, and again, you went over there and you had to adapt to a very different type of culture, a time zone. Um, and I loved it, loved Azerbaijan and um, missed out on qualification on that situation. I think I lost to actually it might have been a home fighter, Azerbaijan, that knocked me out of the world qualifications then. I had a few months break and then I had to go to Paris. So I fought in the center of Paris and I I won the first match. I got a draw. I got a buy, sorry, I got a buy in the second and I think the third match I faced the current then Olympic champion, he was a Cuban guy named Jesus and then he bet me by three points and then that was it, that was 10 years gone um, I was on the next plane home and then uh, there was a whole myriad of 
I suppose, decluttering my thoughts and what I'd done the last eight to 10 years. What am I going to do for the next eight to 10 years? Because what it took to get to that point, um, I kind of feel like it, it, it felt like 20 years, even though I enjoyed every bit of it. It took such an immense amount of energy, uh, not just on my behalf, but everyone else's. Uh, yeah. I was actually going to ask you that, but you've more or less answered yeah. it. So like, that must be really, really tough to know that what you've been investing all your time and energy mm. and being away from home for so long that you were you were doing it for a reason and now that reason was gone. Mm. So what did you do then? Well, I've, I've mentioned it to some of the athletes before when they've asked and some of my athletes and, and other athletes that would have asked me um, about my journey and what I'd done afterwards. I distinctly remember sitting in the airport after coming back and uh, I think I sat there for about two hours. I didn't want to move out. I couldn't move out because I didn't know what way to go, what do I do. Um, I think I probably knew at that stage that the sport for me was over. Um, there was a huge amount learned that I would have to get, I'd have to wait a few more years to fully appreciate how much I actually learned um, from a psychological point of view and not just a technical point of view. Um, but I think at that stage probably knew it was over because there wasn't going to be the same amount of government granting the money, the scholarships. That wasn't going to happen again. And that's what you need. You're, you're competing against countries that had massive funding and structure in place. So at the age of 21, 22, I retired from the sport and took up uh, Thai boxing. And before I move on, was, was that the first year that Taekwondo was actually in the Olympics? No, as far as I'm now I'm going to be tested. I think it, Taekwondo, as far as I remember is one of the only sports to ever be demonstrated in the Olympics twice. Um, in the Seoul Olympics, so when it was the home nation, it was a demonstration sport. And I think in Barcelona in 92, it was in 92, Barcelona, it was another demonstration sport. And then it was actually inducted the next Olympics. So it's actually had a few runarounds. It's actually been in there um, quite a bit. I'm feeling a little bit older now because when I was doing Taekwondo, <laughs> there was a style of Taekwondo called Olympic Taekwondo. Yes. I, I trained out in Tala for a while. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. And Harold's Cross. That's right, yeah. And, and there's, there, there is very two different styles. There's a uh, one predominantly done, and it seems to have stemmed from Northern Korea, ITF Taekwondo, and then Southern Korea would have been WTF or Olympic Taekwondo, which would, they're, they're generally... Noted by one being more full contact, or back in when I was doing it, WTF was full contact, ITF would have been uh, semi-contact, and yeah, more points. So you say you went training in kickboxing. Was that a step back or a step to the side? It was a whole new universe. It was a jump on a different highway, a, a highway going at a, another, you know, it was toy boxing um, that I jumped into, and then that kind of went that kind of runs parallel to k1 kickboxing so a lot of clubs over here now would do a mixture of both it'd be thai boxing and k1 kickboxing depending on the coach but the first sport i went into was thai boxing um, and i remember missing that feeling i got of exhaustion and exhilaration after a very hard session that I, i'd only had when i was doing olympic taekwondo when i was in these camps so i found the club uh, called chupasart thai boxing um, and my coach then would have been paddy clint and he would have been an ex-former Irish pro Thai boxing champion. So I would have started in Chupasart Muay Thai. And the goal then was not to compete. I was sick of competing. Like I'd spent most of my formative teenage years thinking about podiums and medals. And I suppose defining winning by the colour of a medal. Which you need to do. 
But the problem is when that medal's gone and that podium place is gone, I suppose you're left in a bit of a vacuum. So when I joined Toy Boxing, this club, I just wanted to train and I missed the camaraderie of training. So competition at the start wasn't on my radar at all. Now, something I've noticed about the kickboxing from being up at your club, and I'd, I'd be here regular. well, I was in your club regular enough before we've had, had the lockdown, that if you're looking at it on television or, or you hear of it, it it's a very rough-looking sport. But then when you get talking to the people who are actually doing it, they mm. don't kind of match up with what your perception is. Yeah. There seems to be a lot of very well-educated people taking part in these sports. Yeah. I was at an event out in Tallaght, maybe two years ago and a lot of college kids out there and I was kind of looking at them and you know you'd be expecting these kids to be soft and then they're knocking the stuff out of each other yeah. and then of course shaking hands or whatever at yeah. the end of it so it's it's totally different to the perception you would have yeah yeah I, I, I agree I think everybody that walks in the doors uh, of my gym or you know and any gym uh, that's you know pre-COVID and accepting uh, students, you find that everyone has the potential to get better. Absolutely everybody. And the only thing I can really, at, you know, after all my years of experience of competing, the only difference between someone that is either high performance or a champion uh, and not is just the hours of work they're willing to put in because there is no um, typecast. The days of someone coming in looking rough with loads of scars and a broken nose. Yeah, these guys and, you know, these girls do come in and they're great and they have a persona that they might seem unapproachable and they're very approachable. They're the most friendly, highly educated uh, people. And I think it's because, um, I, I suppose it's ever since, I, I would put it down to the UFC taking a, a big jump into the com- people's kind of commercial realities that when the UFC kind of took off, every martial art, kickboxing, Muay Thai, Kung Fu, karate, everything has just come back, like the golden era back in the 80s. So martial arts is kind of reliving, I think, a, a bit of a, a rebirth. So now you're attracting absolutely everybody. And to get to a certain level, I think, in any sport, there's a huge amount of whether social intelligence, emotional intelligence that comes with that, or they're going to learn it. If a student is coachable in any sport, they're going to do a lot of good. They're going to do a lot. So yeah, I, I would, I've seen every type of person in here and every single person, if they're willing to put in the time, there's no end to what they can do. And like you said there, with the emotional side of it, you have to be in control of your emotions. Otherwise, you make mistakes, you drop your guard. And with a sport, like like with any sport, you have to be able to think about what you're doing. Like you have to be in the right frame of mind and have a clear head. Now, one of the reasons why I kind of decided on doing this chat with you was, was the last time we met, because you didn't have the same kind of access to your normal training, you were getting more into running. Mm-hmm. And you were asking me about running, and as I was asking you about what you were doing, so I think <laughs> we were getting nowhere. Yeah. So something you just mentioned there a moment ago was how you like that feeling of training to exhaustion. Mm. Do you apply that to your run training? Yeah, one hundred percent. Like I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't have done a lot of long distance running in training camps. I think five and ten k's to keep it, spe- you know, sport specific. Lots of tempo runs, interval, fartlek, all that type of stuff. Um, agility running or agility, te- a lot of agility tests. And then I suppose a couple of years ago, but more intensely over COVID, I became fascinated with the longer running and specifically trail and mountain running. For numerous reasons, I felt it got me to the point of exhaustion a lot quicker. I found I had to try solve a problem 
uh, whether it was physical or mental or you know psychological to get over a hill uh, of being caught out on a few different mountains when snow was hit and then it tested out even my uh, my preparation skills like did I plan the route do I know could I do this route in the dark could I did I bring the right gear and um, so I loved that the simplest thing it wasn't just about going over one or two mountains it was about your prep I have to think about so I'm going out tomorrow um, within obviously my 5k limit and do a few loops I'm lucky to be on the doorstep at the Dublin mountains so I still have to know my route I have to plan the right gear the right food so even you know what I'm going to have for dinner today so I love the idea of being able to sit out and plan what I'm going to do now it's not going to be easy I'll either do a short fast run or it's going to be a few more loops and I'll try get some uh, good kilometers in but I think you learn a lot about yourself at the point of breaking uh, physically and mentally you learn a huge amount you, I think you become self-aware and I think through that self-awareness I think as a person it bleeds into the rest of your life you make better decisions you've better coping mechanisms with stress so you know even at the start of COVID I remember the first time the first month from March when it first hit you know it would have been quite stressful to, to go into the unknown um, but there's no way that I suppose that my training in sport and my failures in sport did they not come back to help me because you know when you're training now that I'm recently finding out when I'm doing trail running uh, and especially in the ring when I was fighting or even sparring when we can spar you're always hit against you always come up against this big wall and you have to figure out how to get around that wall you have to you have to first be optimistic and realistic to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel I can do this I can win this I can get over this but you can do it and I've failed enough times over the years and fortunate enough to win a few times and um, that I know that all you need to do is just keep putting one foot in front of the other metaphorically and physically and you'll get there now when you're out on a trail run and mm. you're going up a hill and you find the hill is quite challenging do you find it hard to actually slow down or do, or do you feel do you feel guilty or that you're failing if you have to stop yeah because yeah. when you're in the ring, it's not you that controls what you do. It's, yeah. it's the opponent. You, you can't just stop when you feel tired. You have to stop when it's over. Yeah. Yeah, there's 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 some stuff that when you're going up a hill, there's certain stuff that is very specific, I think, to say, for instance, in a ring when you're fighting. As you perfectly said there, sometimes you can't control that. If the other opponent is stronger and faster, he will dictate the pace. But the great thing for me, specifically about trail running, is I can decide all of that. So if I'm going up the hill and I feel it quite difficult at the start, you do feel a little bit guilty. But I think we've talked about this before off mic and you have to relax a little bit because if I'm out, if I've done 20, 30k up a mountain or around a certain area, I have to accept that I can't go off like a, a drag racing car and expect to keep that pace up. So I've failed um, my first few attempts, I failed to get over certain points and certain checks and certain legs of a run. And uh, I do then what I would do nearly after a fight. I kind of have a word with myself afterwards and try deconstruct from the point of failure back to the start line what went wrong. And it always comes back to the simplest thing and the simplest bit of advice. And, and you had said it to me a few weeks ago. Uh, lower your heart rate, slow your pace, breathe and just keep going. And If you need to take a break, take a break. But as as you mentioned, it can be very difficult because you have to fight that need of feeling guilty for slowing down. And um, if there was somebody out with you running yeah. the same route, would that make it even harder? Um, see, again, I've been trialed and tested in, in sport and in a few different sports and specific, you know, in competition and in training camps. 
that I think what stands to me is I've been trialed and I've failed in quite a lot. I've won quite a lot, but I think I've failed more. So I've had to bounce back from failure more times than actually standing on a podium. So when I go running, um, I think, you know, they say, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And on a, on a trail run and on a long run, you feel that come in at loads of points. You don't feel people must think you're, you're a machine. You can get over this and you can run this speed. Not at all. You're fighting so many battles in your head that when I'm running, if someone is faster than me or someone is slower, it makes no difference. I'm there. If I can help, it's great. Um, if I'm ahead of somebody, I love helping people out to go with them. But sometimes, as I've learned running with people, they hate when you run with them. So if you're slightly faster than them, they actually much prefer for you to go ahead. So I can play the role. Like Once I'm on that hill, I'm happy. I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my own trials up there. And if I can help someone, it's a bonus. Uh, and if not, I'm just going to enjoy enduring a little bit of pain. Yeah, that's something similar to what I would do myself. And mm-hmm. I'm the person who would hate somebody running beside me if they're talking all the time yeah. and trying to control <laughs> yeah, my, yeah. my breathing. But with me, I think what's changed with me now is because I have the experience and I feel I've, I've nothing to prove. So I know I can yeah. slow down and ration out my energy. Mm-hmm. And that, that's how I, I look at doing it. And then I look at some specific runs that I'm doing to kind of bring on a, a specific response. So I know if I should be running hard and I know when I should be running easy, you, you, you can't do the same thing all, all the time. So your training philosophy from kickboxing will mm-hmm. be very, very different now to the running. Or mm. are you finding that there's a crossover between the two? Like, how are you applying your martial arts now to the running? Yeah, well, I suppose... In so from Muay Thai, so I suppose the three main sports, so, and, and mostly all combative, combative, um, would have been Olympic Taekwondo, K1 kickboxing, and Muay Thai. Very, very different mechanical sports. A lot of crossover in the energy systems that would work. But now running, and specifically trail or doing any type of mountain running, the the crossover for me there is if I was training for a fight, which there was talks of me just before COVID went down uh, in March last year. Uh, of me possibly going to Africa to fight over in Africa in yeah down South Africa and I haven't fought in about two two and a half years last fight was in Germany for a European uh, belt which I lost on points so I was interested and I was I was open to suggestion of going unfortunately COVID hit but actually brought me back to try to plan out a camp again and one of the things was was to bring mountain running into my training camp for this uh, Muay Thai match the crossover for me would have been I know from I'm big on metrics and I'm big on stats and I know my heart rate when I'm in the flow of a spar, a heavy spar, my heart rate is from 150 to about 175. If I'm maxing out, I'm hitting up about 187. So for me to comfortably overwhelm someone in the ring, in control, if I'm in control, I need to replicate on that mountain a consistent 150 to 170, 175. Um, and then when I get above that and I go red zone and I'm really fatiguing and that lactic acid is building up for me, that's what I would call the last round, the championship round. So I psychologically imagine at that then point, when them numbers trigger on my watch, uh, I associate them with specific points in a match. So I associate and visualize at what point that will happen. So when it does happen, which it will, unless I knock them out and that's good, if I can do that. If not, I... Um, the visualization uh, training and psychological training has been done. And, you know, unfortunately, 
you don't know how well you've been doing it until retrospectively you go back and you kind of think, well, I really pulled out of that, you know, a tough space in round three, round four, I came back. And I remember thinking, what the hell was I thinking in round four? And a lot of times it brings you to obscure places and it could have been up that mountain or it could have been in the gym when someone was shouting at you to do an extra 50 press-ups. Uh, but you have to visualize. So for me, the physiological crossover of keeping my heart rate and them lactic thresholds and associating them with a specific point in a match is massive for me. Now, I have a load of questions now that I'm going to forget some of them. Let's do it. That just came out because of what you had said there. One was... <laughs> Do you think there's an, in, an interference effect caused by the running when you might want to go back to the kickboxing? But you've actually said that you're using the running to help you improve the kickboxing. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what's helping you about enjoy it more and, and get better at it. Yeah, I, like I'm a big fan of what, what I find is what I find fascinating is even when I, I, I was chatting to yourself and other people that are uh, competing at a high level in all sports. I've, you know, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of people in a lot of different sports, very different sports, but they all share um, common beliefs where they see, I suppose, challenges um, as exciting. They have to, you know, overcome them. They see, uh, I suppose, benefits in all types of training. So for me, if I was running, sometimes when I go running, I'll be competitive. Sometimes I run and it's an angry run. Now you, if you're listening to music, it might be a little bit harder music. Sometimes when you run, it's softer music and I'm just doing it to clear my head. But I kind of use it as a tool to motivate myself, to vent frustration, to loosen out my legs. So I try not to use it as a singular tool. I don't define it in one aspect. I kind of use, and in the same way as I don't define my training in the gym, um, and combat training as just combat training, it permeates into, I suppose, how I make decisions, how I handle stress, how... I solve a problem um, and you kind of make it a part of you. So uh, in that way, me running up the mountains is not just running up the mountains. It's a part of what I do. And that's an interesting one where you mentioned about the kind of crossover with Mm -hmm. sports because I suppose it's like learning how to drive, that once you can drive a car, you will be able to drive a JCB or drive a crane. Or Mm. Once you get those fundamentals, you'll have to get specific with the workings of it. But it, it is there are similarities and that's what you're doing. Now, you mentioned knocking out somebody in a fight. Now, you don't look like the kind of person that would like knocking somebody out. Now, to me, I will be thinking, as I'm talking to you, and this is where I get caught out, that if you were to knock somebody out, you'd be trying to pick them up. and whatever. Yeah. But I did notice that a couple of years ago, Joe Dottoye had you as knockout of the day or knockout of the week. You did a fight uh, was it out in the basketball stadium? Yeah, that was Marcus actually that Davis. was yeah that was for the world championship. So that was uh, I thought. Um, what was funny about that was I was training in my gym at the time. So my coach Paddy had rang me and he said, Do "You want to fight?" Which is nothing out of blue because that's how most fights would get started. Make sure I'm available. And I said, yep. Yeah. And I said, okay, who's the opponent? Where are we going? Where are we traveling in the world? You know, what weight is it? Because we're going to have to cut weight. Uh, how much money am I getting paid? It was never a huge amount, but even the token of a couple of hundred euro and a plane trip and a, a hotel somewhere added to the experience. But this time he didn't mention, he wouldn't tell me who it was. He said, listen, I'll talk to you when you get into training tonight. So I knew it was either set me up for a joke um, or it was going to be a big fight. Uh, so when I got in, he kind of said it to me. He said, uh, Marcus Davis out of UFC it was coming to Ireland and they need someone in the 78 kilo to 84 kilo category and your name came up uh, I think at the time I had about 3-4 national belts I'd maybe held the national professional tie boxing belts at 3 weight divisions at K1 belts um, so I was top of the list at the time so I took it 
the funny thing was he would have been a, a fighter I loved to watch. He would have been someone I looked up to and I'd sit in and watch him on the UFC and then had this realization, you're going to fight, uh, you know, a fighter you kind of, you'd watch on the, I've watched on the UFC a few weeks ago. Um, and then all, all of a sudden it got announced and uh, I'm sitting at a, a small little press conference and uh, just remind me of that, was it the Rocky Four scene where you have <laughs> Ivan Drago down one end and me down the other end. Um, there was a quiet confidence uh, to me, uh, all the way through, uh, coming up to that fight, but funny enough, not in the winning. Uh, there's a, I think there's a, a specific way of thinking in Thai boxing that in Thai boxing, you can equally be as cheered by how much punishment you can take and come back and show a big heart, uh, as sometimes when you win. So, to be honest with you, I was fifty fifty. I didn't think about winning or losing. I thought about round one. I thought about the first minute in round one. I thought about walking into the stadium. And the smells might increase. And again, I came back to visualization. Um, and funnily enough, even on the day of the fight, I had um, like people sending me condolence messages. Uh, they didn't mean to. I knew they, they were trying to be helpful and they were trying to say, listen, you know, don't worry about the fight. If whatever way it goes, you're still a great fighter. And, and I was thinking, well, that was, there was undertones of negativity in that. And I went, listen, thanks very much for your message. And in my head, I went, you know what? In Thai boxing and the amount of training I've done, if I take a beat and I take a beat, and if I get knocked out, I get knocked out, I'm going to get back up. And if I win, I win, and that's it. I'll just focus on my training. And then lo and behold, the week of the fight, um, I ended up getting um, pneumonia. Uh, the fight couldn't be called off. Uh, there was too much money put into it. The belts had arrived. Because th there was a few title uh, events on that night. I was the main event. So I ended up getting pneumonia. And I think I had about... At aerobic capacity of about 120 beats per minute, 130 beats per minute, I could last at that rate for literally two minutes. And then I had to stop and sit down. So my uh, aerobic uh, fitness and capacity was drastic, never mind anaerobic uh, training. So two, three days before the fight, I went, I, I'd said to my coach, I don't, I don't know if I can actually uh, stand for more than three rounds. So we went back and forth and we said, listen, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Do you think you can get one round in? I said, I might get one and I'll let you know at the end of the first round if I can get a second round in. If not, you might have to throw the towel in. And then we joked, or you'll, and then, you know, there's always dark humour, or you'll get knocked out. And then we laughed <laughs> and then we trained. So it turned out uh, we kept it quiet in camp. No one knew I was sick um, or that I couldn't breathe or I literally could not skip or jog for more than one minute, two or two rounds. So we had to get to, the, we had a second problem now. You have to get a medical off a doctor before you compete. So I had to try to get around the medical. Uh, the problem was, was that when uh, I got to the stadium, I purposely got there late. Because when you get to a stadium late as a main event, everyone is waiting on you and the co-main event. Uh, but you also pull a doctor away from the ring. So me getting there late had to force a doctor coming from the ring, which means he had to do a quicker kind of check on me. Uh, I don't know how I passed, but I ended up passing the medical. Got into the ring and my coach said, okay, listen, you've won round. This is it. You have a time to make a, you know, you can make a change in your life. You can, you can hit that mark in your life. And then lo and behold, yeah, at the end, close enough to the end of the first round, I knocked him out. And I just remember thinking, well, you know, that was, uh, uh, you kind of, it was a double take. I was always confident in my ability that I think I was going to get a highlight reel uh, knockout. I wasn't on the cards. So I thought I might have stopped him. Did I think I'd stop him in that way? Like it was, 
I suppose it was a dream come true. It was a drill practiced many, many, many times. And then I got told a month or two later, I got voted and uh, not get out of the year in London. I was told there was an event already in London. I wasn't invited to and I got knocked out of the year um, and I still never received that trophy. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After all that. Yeah. Now, I was going to ask, did you feel intimidated going into that fight? Obviously, you, you were saying you didn't. No. What motivates somebody to go into the ring knowing that they might be getting mm. the stuff knocked out of them? It's, um, again, it comes back to, and I'm a big fan when training kids or anybody that's highly coachable and I suppose impressionable uh, with the right coach. I've been trialed and tested. I started off combat training at the age of 13, but I think it works across every single sport. If you can teach a kid or a person uh, about failure and coming back from failure and then keep doing that. And if that kid um, or adult gets to the next level of that sport or point in their life, they've ultimately learned, I suppose, a coping mechanism. They've learned a schematic of how to get to the next level, but not just in sports, but in everything. So when COVID hits, uh, I definitely think um, I was more confident at seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not saying it's an ideal. I'm not saying that I enjoyed it at all, but I definitely think I'd see adversity a little bit differently because I've been put in adversity quite a lot. So when I get into the ring, I accept there's there's one or two one or two things that can happen. I'm either getting knocked out. So I think I remember reading up and it was an old Spartan's uh, psychological trick is that the Spartan warriors used to envision themselves losing a battle. Uh, they used to they used to envision the worst possible way of losing a battle. They used to envision uh, winning it in the best possible way. So they actually. I think that's the first point where you would have seen, you know, in history, people visualizing every eventuality because when certain things happen in the ring, you can't be surprised. So when I got into the ring, I just broke it down into, okay, I might win and then I might knock this guy out in 10 seconds. I might get knocked out in 10 seconds. So when I dealt with all them fears, it led me back to one simple thing, break everything down in the smallest possible uh, moment of time. Think, you know, the first round, the first five seconds, the first 10 seconds and build blocks build blocks to the win now this might sound like a very complicated question mm. because of the answer you've just given me because you've answered some of the stuff yeah. that I was thinking about in my head but you're just giving me more questions yeah go for now, it now you talked recently about problem solving mm. now problem solving if you go in the trail run is how much food am I going to need to yeah. get me to the end of it if, or if you're going between checkpoints how do you problem solve in the ring when the actual problem keeps changing? The information you're getting keeps changing. Now, there is a quote by Bruce Lee that says, the highest technique is to have no technique. My technique is a re result of your technique. My movement is a result of your movement. So that's somebody who is kind of mirroring what's going on mm -hmm. in front of them. How do you train for that? Like, what, what, what is the psychology of the fight? Or is it the training that becomes the fight? Well, so for instance, if I'm coaching an athlete, um, here's the scenario, here's, here's what has to happen for me to coach them. So we have to have a very informal conversation. So myself and the athlete, I will ask the athlete very simply, they don't have to go into specifics unless they want to, um, is your outside life, is your uh, extrinsic stress factors home, work, boyfriend, girlfriend, dog, cat, whatever is, are they all manageable? Can you manage all of these different factors in your life? Do you think you're in a manageable point that when we put the pressure on in camp that uh, they won't affect your training in a negative way? If 
the person training says yes and he went listen yeah I have a bit of stress here but it's manageable um, if we don't need to talk about it any further about how they're going to manage their time around certain people or being around negative people and things like that so the first thing is that we have to start on the right foot so the psychological aspect starts from the conversation not even day one of training they have to be in the right frame of mind before I even start to go day one of camp so from day one of camp I've already looked at the opponents and put a strategy in place um, but not only that a strategy may change um, I have to be willing and through my own experience it's happened to me many many times I have to be able to coach and put a system of training in place uh, without getting into specifics of techniques and what have you but strategies in place that um, the athlete needs to fully buy into the I suppose the way we're going to go about training and what they're going to do in the first few rounds or for the whole fight but then they equally have to be able to throw all of that out the window within 10 seconds of the first round and default back to what we think the contingency should be so if you're going to fight I suppose with myself if you're going to if, you, if you're going to do a training camp with myself you have to be very very adaptable you don't have to be a super athlete you just have to be a coachable athlete that has to be able to buy into I suppose a, a compounded training camp and then be able to let it all go in the blink of an eye and still have the same enthusiasm and that's why I think you'd probably find um, I feel you'd get a lot of um, intelligent people uh, that would have to do it because it takes a lot of self-awareness and facing your own doubts and your own demons to actually do that type of stuff and as you mentioned about the athlete it's the athlete's job or responsibility to be coachable if the athlete isn't coachable 100%. it's not going to happen isn't that it yeah now going back again to the psychology of the, of the fight it's one thing i think sparring with your friends people who you're, you're used to training mm-hmm. with you've seen them all the time and with a friendly competition it could be maybe similar to if i put a plank of wood on the floor there across the mat and ask you to walk across it that's no problem you'd, you'd run across it but then if you were to raise it up off the ground where mm-hmm. it's about yeah. two feet up off the ground you can still do it but you're going to be a bit more cautious because something something has changed there's, there's a, a degree of risk yeah. after being added into it now if we were to put that up higher there's even more risk so so I think that's what's happening mm-hmm. to me that's how I would perceive going from the ring in your gym yeah. to the ring yeah. in front of a couple of hundred people how does that affect you mentally now the reason I'm asking this is because I have been to a few races and there was one in particular which was the 100 kilometer world championships over in Winscotton back in 2010 or 2011 and I felt it was in great shape going into that race and then I got started to get anxiety the day before and I couldn't sleep that night mm. I was in a really really bad way and the day of the race I thought was going to be my best ever race I choked and the team manager took me aside had a chat with me before and tried to calm me down but a really really bad day and I have had you know, attacks like that since then. Not, not, not as much now mm-hmm. because I'm not in the same kind of pressured environment. But going into a ring to face somebody that you don't know mm-hmm. except for their reputation, how do you mentally prepare for that? Well, I suppose I've had nearly, what, 47 pro fights, 48 pro fights. So that's 48 professional camps, having to camp, having to cut weight, having to psychologically prepare, make amendments that I suppose how we you know, uh, perceive the camp, perceive the fight, different fighters, traveling, different countries, different food. So there's a lot of stresses. The most important thing is when there's so many variables 
um, it's very easy to get anxious. I'm always anxious. I'm always a little bit afraid before stepping into the ring. Uh, the difference between someone that doesn't train and someone that does train is that when the referee and the bell, the referee says go and the bell goes, um, the difference is is that I've a set of skills then that can actually finish the job, and that's where the camp kicks in. That's where the confidence kicks in. But anyone that says that they're not anxious and not afraid before a weigh-in or the day before a fight or they don't lose sleep, I think there's something wrong if if they don't have that level of awareness. Now there's confidence. And I would be confident as well, but not to accept an emotion and to artificially raise your confidence is probably more dangerous. So for me to um, manage that, um, it's a very simple trick um, that I'll tell you what I do. Um, so I would get my fighters to imagine the ring that we spar in in the gym uh, is the same ring they're going to fight in. So, for instance, I had fought in China on a big show a couple of years ago. Uh, it was Europe versus China or the rest of the world versus China. And the ring, we had to walk up about three flights of stairs. We were up about two stories. Uh, and the ring seemed about 200 meters. It was about 200 meters away, 150 meters. It was a huge distance away. The ring looked small. But in that moment in time, I had to imagine I was back in Dublin and I was back in that one ring. And the same way I see a referee, it's the same faceless referee, if you know what I mean. I, I, I don't think of whoever refs it. The judges don't matter. The referee is that same faceless person I imagined when I was sparring in camp. The opponent, that's the same opponent that I was hitting pads against or I was sparring with. It's the same guy. So the only thing, I've, what I've taken away is as much as possible is the extrinsic factors, of, of, of them stress factors. I've tried to minimize them and bring them into one faceless, locationless place and person. So now I can focus on what I've done in camp. Now in camp, I think like in a fight you're ever or in any type of competition, you, you will, your best performance is always going to be replicated by your best day's training. So if you haven't trained to do something really spectacular, um, you're not going to do anything spectacular in the ring. You're not going to get that Hail Mary, you know, pass where you just get that. Like even when I was when I won the World Championships, um, that drill that I'd done um, was actually trained in me since I was 13 for years and years and years. And it just happened to come out at that one time. So I suppose managing... Uh, stresses outside the ring has taken time to practice then for me if I train as hard as I physically and psychologically can in a camp um, that will stand to me when that bell rings and that fear that resides into me right up until that bell rings the minute that bell rings now I'm confident the bell rings now it's time to go it's the build up of the camp the way in the travelling in an airport hungry if you can manage your emotions in that you're psychologically getting stronger, but that's something that compounds in every single fight. Uh, I think that all these actions of traveling and deprivation and going to a different country, different food, different language, still having to compete at your highest level, it's all banked. It's all banked and compounded to the next one and the next one. And if you can keep going in that sport to the next level, the next stage, you're always going to get better. That's a really good tip and visualization is a really, really useful tool. And some people don't acknowledge or accept that visualization is real. Mm -hmm. And I reckon now that anybody listening to this now mm -hmm. has a boxing ring in, in their head now. They can yeah. see a boxing ring. So they're visualizing something without actually realizing that they're visualizing it. And in a similar manner, if I said to you that I was going to meet you on O'Connell Street tomorrow, O'Connell is in your head. Yeah. And when I say a time, you're going to start thinking back to how you're going to get there. 
If it's I say like meet you at 10 o'clock, you'll be thinking, well, traffic is light. Yeah. I'll leave the house at half nine. And that's visualisation. Yeah. But people don't realise or acknowledge that it's a tool. And if you don't acknowledge it, you can't use it. Yeah. Yeah. And unless it's practice, like I definitely think it's, uh, when it was first introduced to me, um, it sounds very um, airy-fairy to some people. But it's 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 not. It's very simple. It's it's you uh, imagining what you want to do, um, very very specifically. And it takes patience, and it takes time, and it takes failure, and it takes the smallest success from an immense amount of work. And then it takes you, you do another immense amount of work and visualization, and then your success gets a little bit bigger. You get a little bit better of a win. And then what you have is then you have a a, a physical affirmation. And so when I'm training athletes, the first goal is in camp is to give them their affirmation as quick as possible. Give them a positive affirmation because now I can get momentum. And if I can get momentum, well, then, you know, great things happen. Yeah, very true. And we all practice visualization, but we don't always have deliberate practice visualization. Yeah. And, and that's what makes a difference because when you deliberately focus on what you're doing, then it, it becomes part of your, part, part of your uh, toolbox. Yeah. Now, I'm going to go back now to where you, you were talking about coaching kids. Mm. How did you get involved in coaching? So I would have started in a very, very small club in Tala, in Jobstown, uh, back when I was 12 years of age. And it was a massive club, massive, massive club. Not huge about the competition end at that stage. So I didn't start off in a club that was huge about the um, competing and traveling actually the far opposite it was much about more the self-defense and the tradition of martial arts and meditation and mindfulness and things like that uh, and because it was such a big club and you know it, there was a lot of kids involved so as I went up the grades the grading system in martial arts a part of that is what I, what I loved about it was you were actually from white belt going to yellow and yellow going to green and green tag and that type of thing you were actually becoming learning how to become a coach at each belt so we we talked about this before and it would be quite common for a yellow belt when a white belt came in a yellow belt to come up and help that white belt out or a green belt to help a yellow and so on so you had this hierarchy um put a hierarchy of trying to help the person underneath you so for me without me realizing it at such a young age you were learning a fantastic dynamic of how uh, a culture should work and like it's it's when i look at stuff now and i see these ted talks it's all that type of stuff it's trying to create that culture the hierarchy and um, of trying to help people out so for me that was a big big learning curve at the very start even though competition wasn't really on 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 the line at that time yeah i think that's fairly unique to martial arts in that part of the process of getting better moving up the ranks is that you have to be able to teach and what I I mentioned to you before was when I I was in your gym and everyone was finished their training and there was a kid hitting away the punch bag Mm. and somebody stopped what they were doing and he went over and he started demonstrating what to do he spent about 15-20 minutes showing the young lad how to actually hit the punch bag there's a quote by Richard Feynman that if you want to truly learn something you have to be able to teach it yeah I think, I think that is really, really unique with martial arts was not all elite athletes make good coaches because mm, yeah. the, the training is just focused on performance or focused on them. And in a lot of cases, it might have been talent that got them to where they were. And that's obviously helped mm. with hard work. And as you've said to me before, that 
you enjoyed what you were doing when you, when you were younger. And mm-hmm. because you enjoyed what you were doing, that helped you to improve it. And mm-hmm. then you enjoyed it even more. And the thing about being talented is, if you're talented, you can take things for granted. And you might lack the empathy to understand why somebody can't do what you do. Yeah, 100%. And there's that bit of frustration. And it makes it harder for somebody to bring somebody on. Yeah. But again, that's that is different with, with the martial arts. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And and you're dead right in saying that. If someone starts to clock up a few medals and a few performances, they're only going to go. I think two very clear polarized routes. I think very cocky and very uh, unaware, and you know, not very self-aware. Um, or they're going to go the opposite way and become, and I feel the, the way that every martial arts, and I think probably most would go, uh, become very conscious of their own ability, their effect on other people. Uh, they would have very high emotional intelligence. So they can read when someone is, uh, you know, as a coach even, when do you push someone? Sometimes you need to tell um, a child or an adult or an athlete, um, you know, just get on with it, get it done, because that's what the, that's what that needs to be done. That's the lesson that has to be learned that day. Sometimes you need to just be an ear and just need to listen. Uh, and sometimes you might need to call the drill. Maybe it's the wrong drill for the time. There's too much pressure. And that takes trial and error. But it takes a lot of listening. You have to listen. And, you know, people say a lot of things. And I suppose we hear a lot about mental health. Um, the big thing is, you know, people say a lot of things, but it's kind of what they're not saying or, the, you know, the undertone uh, of what they're saying you're trying to read into and I think that's really heightened in performance because you are trying to look for every edge on an opponent, but really on yourself. You're trying to be the better. You're trying to be the better person you were than last day, last month, last year, and that only comes um, from from you looking in inside yourself and kind of you know figuring out your weaknesses. Where do you need to work on? Are they physical? Are they visual? Um, like a lot of people will say to me, it's very difficult to visualize certain drills or techniques. And I'd say to them, listen, you know, if, if you want to practice a, a specific technique or mechanical movement, you would have no problems practicing that mechanical movement. I said, but how much time are you going to advocate for visualizing? And uh, I suppose, to what degree will you break that down? You know, specifically for fighting, you need to break down everything from the walk into the ring. Um, what happens if the crowd boos? I've had crowds throw stuff at me um, for no other reason that other than maybe I might have been fighting the home champion or the home fighter i've had you know home crowds cheer for me um it, it's crazy and that's enough to knock you off kilter um uh, or, or put a little stutter in your step and now all of a sudden your eight-week training camp has this you're not performing you've lost your flow you're, you've got lag um so you've got to prep for all these kind of little things and for me I, as i said coming up through the martial arts and having different coaches i would have had one or two different coaches and they all would have been very good listeners, very good communicators. And I think above all, actually, besides their technical ability, they actually knew their limits of coaching. They knew where they shouldn't step, which now I can appreciate. I'm thinking, well, like it takes an incredible uh, yeah, that's a good point. foresight uh, for that type of, to be that type of coach. You mentioned when we were talking about athletes and being coachable that you would chat with an athlete and that, try and find out what was going on in their life, different stresses. Mm. I take it that would be hobbies as well. Mm-hmm. Because when you mentioned having come back from Olympic selection, having missed out on it, that you would have felt you, you had nothing there. Do you have any hobbies, anything outside of the martial arts? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So a, bi- a, big, uh, a big thing with me would be 
as massive as combat training and fitness training in general is to me, which is huge. It takes a huge part of my life. I'm not that guy that goes out and talks about fitness. So if I'm going out for a meal with people, I don't sit around talking about press-ups and sit-ups. It's actually due the way around. I end up, you know, going to a wedding and being the guy at the table that when people have a few drinks in, they're going to me, okay, listen, uh, I'm going to see you Monday and we're going to train and I'm going to be trying to kind of go, listen, let's just not talk about it now. It's kind of like, even though I'd sit down and love to talk about it for for ages, but for hobbies, yeah. Um, I think about six, seven years ago, I ended up taking up um, ballroom dancing uh, with my partner. So, she had got me a voucher um, for one or two, or a course, I think it was, a course of ballroom dancing. And um, I took it up because I was thinking, this is brilliant. This is, you know, it's something totally different. It's away from uh, combat training. It's away from the gym. It wasn't actually really away from the gym because it was actually right next door because there's a dance studio right next door. So that was about six, six, seven years ago. And other than covid kicking in like still going so i was actually doing ballroom two three times a week and before um covid kicked in the plan was to actually maybe do a competition because we actually won uh we won an event we won a, a charity event in the red cow um doing a paso doble and the next step would then was to compete in a in an open so if covid hadn't happened uh, the plan was to actually, first of all, fight in Africa if I picked that fight um, and then to possibly compete in a ballroom competition. So that would have been one that when I told people I'd done it, they kind of actually thought I was joking and they wouldn't believe me. Uh, other than that, I'd be an avid fan of podcasts and books, love film, film and television. As, as someone that travels, as an athlete that would travel and a coach that travels quite a lot. Um, you have to fall in love with a laptop and movies and books because you're sitting in airports and hotels and uh, or a hospital. Um, so you have to learn how to de-stress. So I'll be quite conscious I'm not... Here's, I suppose, the paradox is um, I've spent my whole life in fitness, martial arts, combat training, trying to win medals and belts and accumulating a, a bit of silverware. But if this was all to stop tomorrow... I have to, and I've thought about this for years, if this all stopped tomorrow and I couldn't train or coach, I can't be defined by my past. And I don't think, I don't think it'd be easy to do, um, but I can't be defined by my successes or failures. I have to be able to adapt. And I strategically would think about doing different things like ballroom. It's so adverse to Thai boxing, but it's a different part of my brain. It's a different mindset. It's a different psychology. And it's also something I really enjoy doing. So for me, and even for my athletes, I tell them, enjoy lots of stuff. Enjoy as many different diverse things you can. Because if one of them goes, you can't be defined by that one thing going. Because you're going to be left in this dark place. And it ties into, for me, it ties into, I want to say mental toughness. So I would talk about resilience and coping mechanisms for good and bad things, you know. So yeah, yeah, I'd be quite it'd be important for me to have a diversity of different hobbies and subjects like I'd be into. And again, that, that shows the crossover from martial arts or a sport mm. to another activity or another sport. Because I'm sure that your footwork mm. would be <laughs> fairly primed and then you have would have good coordination and then your timing and distance. Yeah, yeah. I think more to the point, I'd be, um, I'd be very coachable. I'm very easy... Um, I take the lead on a lot of things because usually if I'm coaching, I'm probably the peer in the room. So if I'm the peer in the room, I'm taking uh, the lead. But then sometimes 
and you've heard it before, like a bit of a cliche, sometimes you have to know when to be second place and sit back. And that has to be the case. So when I have coaches coming up under my system of training, uh, sometimes they have the right answer. And sometimes I have to sit back and allow that to happen. There's there's a power in that of knowing when to not speak and when to not act and when to not do something. So when it came to ballroom dancing, I knew when to, I was very inquisitive. I felt I was like a child. I kept asking, okay, how does that work? And why do I do this? And, and I enjoyed being a student again in something that I enjoyed being a white belt again in something I had no idea about. I just knew I enjoyed it. And for me, it's about chasing and being a white belt in other areas and being that beginner again and getting that, you know, the first time is always important of anything. You want to go back and get that first feel of the win and the first, but why, you know, reminisce all the time of that? Why not find a new hobby and get that feeling again, you know? Yeah, and we don't know what we don't know yeah. until yeah. opportunities are yeah. presented. So yeah, that's very interesting. Now, something totally different. <laughs> you were recruit 13 oh, yeah. on Ultimate Hell Week yeah, yeah, on yeah. RTE. How did that come about? Well, now, I suppose up there with, you know, any of the titles I've won and, you know, and a few personal things in my life that, you know, you look back and you kind of smile and you think, do you know what? You know, that was a, that was a great point. Um, Hell Week for me was a program on RTE2 that has seen advertised they were looking for candidates. So it was based uh, very closely on the model of the British program, SAS Selection, for civilians. And they were looking for the toughest civilians in Ireland. And I was sitting down. Now, I'd be a big fan of the TV series, the UK TV series, uh, the SAS version. And I seen it one Sunday night, sitting in one Sunday night. And it's very funny. I never see these applications for other programs. And I've just seen this. And something just spoke to me. Something just said to me, you have to do this. So I think I seen the ad at like 10 o'clock at night. I'm normally in bed by half nine, 10. So because I'm up early at a training or coaching. And I thought, no, i got to stay up. i got to apply for this. So I actually stayed up till about midnight, actually typing out the application form. So lo and behold, I get a call about four or five days later. Um, listen, would you mind um, answering a few more questions? So I answered a few more questions. Then they had said, okay, listen, you've got through two rounds. You've got through the first round draft, second round of interviews online or on, on by phone. Would you come in and do a fitness test? I went, oh, absolutely. I was on cloud nine. Unbelievable. So I went out to um, Blanchardstown, up at the aquatic center. And uh, we had this massive hall. 500 people, 600 people selected and 24 were going to get picked. Um, we had to do our bleep tests, press-ups in a minute, sit-ups in a minute, chin-ups. Um, I had to do an interview afterwards on our backgrounds and, you know, our beliefs and, you know, how do we handle someone screaming in our face. Uh, now, I come from martial arts, so I come from, you know, obviously taekwondo and combat training. I've had plenty of people scream at me and scream all sorts of stuff at me. And because combat sports generally come from a militarized point of view, it's kind of it kind of feels second nature to stand there, um, you know, and get direction if need be. So ended up getting uh, through the fitness test. The next test was I was provisionally picked, so I was absolutely over the moon. Uh, pending a psychological evaluation, which was exactly that, a psychologist had to ring me up, and for twenty minutes, I suppose she asked me numerous questions, but they all kind of led to the same uh, place what would you do if someone was screaming at you in a high pressure situation? They kept asking that same question in different ways because that was going to be the break, the make or break. So passed the psychological evaluation and uh, yeah, the day came. Uh, well, sorry, no, before the day came, 
I had about three months of training uh, to do. This was the start, I suppose, of my first increase in mountain work and mountain cardio. Um, like we were chatting before, I think we were, t- we were touching on downhill training. I had to do weighted training. So I had to load up a big bag, uh, get up the mountains and stay up there for a few hours, running, jogging, walking, rolling around, doing calisthenics. Trained, like I, I trained so hard. It was like I was training for the World Championships again. The problem was three weeks out, I ended up doing too much. I'd done too much mileage. So, um, you know, we had said before about, you know, you, you know, your heart and the lungs, the adaption physiologically can be quite fast, but muscles, tendons, connective tissue, that type of stuff is catch up. Uh, and I think looking back on it now, it was probably runner's knee or some type of tendonitis of the knee. And I can even remember the run, the part of the run, it was a 20K, 20 kilometer weighted run with about, I think I had maybe 50 pounds on my back, 60 pounds on my back running, uh, snow, rain, and it was a downhill sprint. I think I was overstriding and I got this massive pain in my knee, uh, stopped running. Then three weeks out before I was going on the show, I had to stop running uh, and try to get cardio other ways. So uh, the day we got picked up, I had my knee strapped and I'd eaten as much food as I humanly could eat because I thought these guys are probably going to starve us, strip us, do whatever they were going to do. So I need to get as much food into me as possible. I taped up my knee. I couldn't bend. I couldn't get a, couldn't even get a 45 degree bend on my left leg going in. Um, We went in and we got brought up the mountains and the first thing was we got brought into a shooting range and they stripped us down to our underwear in freezing cold. And this was the first test. So they stripped it down. And I remember my leg was taped up with, I think it was kinesiology tape. That stuff came off. Like, God, it was like, it was like it was just paper and wall paste. It just came off and fell off my leg. I went, oh, Jesus, okay, that's gone. And then they just did the DS's, the directing staff, uh, the instructors just verbally abused. Never put your hands on you, but there was so many other different ways psychologically. And I was fascinated I wanted to get to the very end. The last day was the psychological interrogation. My goal was to get to that day. Each day you were hit with about two, three different tests. The first one that night, on our first night, we were stripped down naked, wearing underwear, and it was raining heavy up the mountains. It was either, it was somewhere between minus one degree and one degree. It was Baltic. There was uncontrollable shaking. And they left us out there for 20 minutes to stand in one position. The first test was going to begin that night and it was a 15 kilometer weighted run with a replica bar that looked like a gun. So the bar weighed about four kilos. We had a helmet on our head and a bag. The bags always had to be, God, the bags always had to be between 35 and 60 pounds. I can't remember exactly the weight. And that was a 15 kilometer and I was dragging that left leg like a, I suppose like it wasn't mine. It was, it was, a, it was a horrific run. So my goal at that stage was, forget about day one and day two just get through the next half hour don't ask me how i done it i ended up passing in the qualifying time in day one went to bed we were woken up 30 minutes later when i heard what i found out to be later on a flashbang grenade so i heard a grenade roll in that they obviously use in in, in these uh, set situations where they're doing a uh, clearing rooms i heard this noise of a metallic thing hitting the floor and a massive bang they came in, flipped beds, told us to get dressed, abuse, shouted at people to do press-ups, they emptied bins over people's heads. And then that was the start of, I suppose, all the tests. So we had height tests, had to jump off a bridge into Blessington Lakes, had a claustrophobic test where they 
put a bag over my head and and dragged me onto a golf cart and drove me a kilometer up the mountains and threw me into uh, like a two foot of water and there was like a sewer that went into the ground and I had to crawl through the sewer for about I don't know if it was 200 meters it seemed forever but you literally had to crawl in to that sewer don't ask me how I done it I got through it what took me out at the very end was now everyone everyone was banged up and bruised um, we had to do an endurance march now despite the name the endurance march was unbelievably difficult Um. It was up around the Wicklow Mountains. Um, I know very well now. Um, I became slightly obsessed with the route afterwards. Uh, a very heavy weighted run. Winds were heavy that day. Um, that we had to put a special GPS on us in case we got we fell off. That's what blew they do. Away. If you, yeah, if we blew away or we fell off the mountain. Um, I think I got to about 17k in. I had about 4 or 5k left, which I know now. At the time, and what I learned was, is that it's very difficult to read distance when you're on the mountains, when you're looking at vertical vertical distance and horizontal distance. And when you see, and it was only about 4K away, a snow-capped mountain. The finish was on Tone Mountain. When you see a snow-capped mountain, you're thinking, that must be at least another 10K. Like, it didn't look 5-4. If you, someone had to tell me, I might have got a burst of energy. But, I mean, I was on my last legs, ankles, knees, back. Um, it was a huge amount of injury. And I had to come off. I had to withdraw. And to this day, it was still one of the best things I've ever done and one of my biggest regrets all in the same breath. But since that day, I developed an even bigger passion for the outdoors. And then that led me on to going to Mountaineering Ireland and getting qualified in Mountain Skills, Mountain Skills 1 and Mountain Skills 2. And I'm currently training to do a Mountain Leader Award. So I'm halfway through a Mountain Leader Award. And that all stemmed from... I instantly regretted coming off that mountain and quitting because that's what I done. I quit, but then I equally have to accept you have limitations. You're only a you're only a human. You can only do X, Y, and Z. And then afterwards, in hindsight, I was thinking, God, I could have went a little bit further. But I suppose that's the whole. That's the that was the. That's why it was such a perfect memory and a perfect occasion. I suppose. That's a great story because yeah. like, I was following the program, and. Now what you said about the selection on out in Blanchesville, they were obviously looking for people that could pass the test. They didn't just take people into it to make for good entertainment, good television. That they were looking for people who they actually wanted to pass it. And then if I was finishing out that it's giving you that bit more respect and love for the outdoors that mm. Well, is, do you know what? I wouldn't say they wanted us to pass. I'd say what they wanted to do was they wanted there was definitely a feeling of us and them. Um, as the as the, the numbers got smaller on the course, you seen a glimmer of humanity out of these uh, drill sergeants, these DSs. Um, but these guys are the real deal. And I think the reason why I loved it so much, the endurance, the pain, the um, perseverance, was that you do 100% become a better person at the other end. But in that moment of constant pain, constant psychological deprivation, 30 minutes sleep, 20 minutes sleep a night. The abuse and the shouting and the names and all that, that was easy. That's They're just words. If anything, that allowed, when someone was getting shouted at, it gave me a chance to sleep standing up. So I didn't mind all the shouting. I was just, I was so annoyed that a, an injury took me out. Um, but yeah, it was um, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the sleep deprivation can be 
quite oh. tricky to deal with. Especially if you get a bit of a sleep. I think if you're just constantly awake, it's easier to manage. But sleeping and waking, and sleeping oh. and, and waking. Now, just you mentioned an injury there. Mm. What would the typical injuries be with the sport of Muay Thai? Because I suppose boxing gloves don't really give much protection against the knees of the ribs. And yeah. you can't really condition your ribs to take no. a beating. There's, a, there's definitely a level of conditioning, but it's important that the coach knows is that where that line is drawn. So I just still see silly stuff on Instagram and Facebook of people uh, hammering themselves <laughs> with different objects and bouncing off different things. And I'm thinking, you know what, it's... If we're looking at performance, you're just, you know, when I see these, you know, silly things, the athlete is more likely to just injure themselves and never come back to the sport. So uh, conditioning takes time uh, to build up. Uh, in the ring for conditioning and injury, it's generally soft tissue. It's generally your hamstrings. It's it's bruised ribs. Um, depending on the athlete and their weaknesses, like if they don't do a lot of uh, muscular endurance and weight training or calisthenics, you'll generally find they'll come undone in a camp when the uh, when their body wants to hit that adaption phase. It can't because the stress is far too high. Um, so they have to do a pre-camp and that's why they'd have to do a, There's a few little check boxes they'd have to do pre-camp. But the conditioning end of it, again, pre-camp helps with the physical element. Um, another physical and psychological as well would be how do they feel about taking kicks to the legs and the ribs and you don't really get conditioned to get kicked in the head. If you get kicked in the head, some people can just take and have thicker skulls than other people. What you can do is, and with conditioning, you know, you will toughen up your legs. As you rightly said, you can't strengthen the ribs. You can strengthen your abdominal area. You can strengthen, you know, your obliques. But again, there's a level and everyone's a little bit different uh, at how much they can take. But it's, it's the perception of pain. How do you perceive pain? So if the athlete perceives pain as something that motivates them, whether through aggression or through something else, well, then pain is then a, 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 the successful, I suppose, fighters. And I say successful is the ones that stay competing as long as they can. They see pain as a conduit to success. It's a medium. If you can transform that pain into performance, and again, it takes time to practice that. And that's why you would replicate through sparring uh, and what we call shark tank. So shark tank is the closest an athlete will get to physically competing or sparring at competition level without enduring injury so you get close so fighting in a ring against someone's 100% we try to get to 90 95% but I would handpick the person I would give direction I oversee it there has to be outcomes fighting and sparring or sparring specifically sparring without an outcome and an objective is a waste of time it's just two guys bravado and a high risk of injury unless there's um clearly clearly stated objectives to achieve within a round two and three rounds um, and an end result and how do we analyze how do you feel um, it's a waste of time it's an absolute waste and that's where conditioning comes in I said I think perception the body will adjust quite fast if someone gets hit I need someone to be have the wind knocked out of them maybe um, especially if they're a pro fighter I need them to feel what it's like to take a knee sometimes um, and true being made modest by taking a knee there's a huge strength to be gained if they step back up. I need an athlete to be knocked back a little bit. And then if I see them take that next step forward, that's all I need to see. Because I, I know they'll do it when, it when when push comes to shove. And I suppose the athlete would need to know the difference between the pain of an injury yes. and the pain of just being yeah. 
getting a bit of a beating. Well, so if we so most of the injuries, as I've said, there are connective tissue, muscles, and strains and sprains and a bit of bruising, which does take time out of camp, which is annoying, but you know it, it does happen. The more major injuries that would happen. Um, would be knees, ACLs, people blown out ACLs, probably due to, you know, um, because if you're getting kicked in the side of a knee, there's a there's a lateral force um, kicking uh, to the side of the knee. The Your anterior cruciate ligaments tend to go if someone has a weak one, meniscus, um, you know, people straining, bruising knees, that's a problem when it affects joints. Now you're going into a different realm. So that's why we kind of wear, in training, we'll wear shin pads. Um, we will train the athletes to train above and hit the knee, hit the meat, hit the tick part of the leg so you can absorb some of the punishment. And then you've only a dead leg. But it doesn't mean that every now and again. It's happened once or twice and it's horrific. And I hate when any of my guys or girls get injuries like that because I know how much they love to train and it takes them away from training. But then again, I think their comeback will be stronger. To you, For them to get over that, they come back a stronger person. So there's a positive in it as well. And what you mentioned there about Instagram and seeing a lot of silly stuff on it. Oh, yeah. I'm regularly seeing, well, my own sport, of guys doing marathons and they're talking about, did a marathon with no training or only a couple <laughs> of months training or shouldn't have done it, running with stress fractures and all this bravado, mm. trying to big themselves up. Then all of a sudden they're coaching people. <laughs> How can you coach somebody yeah. if you're, you know, just claiming to have all this tough guy stuff? Yeah. Like to me, I would see failure to be able to recognise when something's wrong as being a weakness. It's not a strength; it's a weakness. Yeah. It doesn't make you tougher. It doesn't make you yeah. stronger. I think that's only realised by, um, like as you said it yourself, you've you've trialed and tested yourself. I've only listened to, and I, I probably don't know all the things you, you, you've done, but some of the stuff you've said to me already, um, it makes me slightly intrigued. Uh, slightly nervous and makes me want to do it slightly um, to see how I do but um, yeah if someone can't recognise I think people find it hard to see when should you push forward because you know you see the rocky moment get up do that one more round and we've talked about it yet there is that and there is a time and that's what a coach is for and that's what a peer is for that peer could take a shape as in a boyfriend, girlfriend, a parent someone that knows you um, that knows I find as I said when I train athletes my role is to harness that energy and put it in the right direction the athlete's role especially at a younger age is to have so much energy they want to run through a brick wall and I'm trying to stop them running through that brick wall so I act and help them and redirect that energy but yeah I just see some stuff on training and mental toughness and all, I've, all I think is that you know it's not sustainable you know, it you might get something out like the, you hear things like uh, people run on stress fractures. You know, maybe if that's what they want to do for the year, because they might need a year out then to recover. So if that goal is worth that injury, and sometimes that happens in fighting, uh, if they think that it's warranted, if the coach thinks that a soft tissue or a you know not a serious injury is warranted to win this match, that might be a controversial, realistic conversation that has to be had, um, and does happen. Um, and it's 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 very interesting as a coach. It's quite interesting. I never want to see any of my athletes injured, um, but I know given them given the chance, and I know they'd put themselves in harm's way. And it's my job to make sure I minimise uh, that type of risk. I'm conscious now of all the time that I'm <laughs> taking up on you now. No, no, work away. So, can you think of anything yourself now that I'm not saying or asking that might be a, a good addition to? what we're talking about no well I suppose 
for me, um, I said I've become. It's big for me to be to take up new hobbies. Uh, for me at the moment, I'm fascinated uh, with running. I love mechanics, sports science, exercise. Uh, exercise physiology it's the truth it's the true currency of all sport like there is no getting around it it's just the scientific approach to training and I, I love that I never stop and I've listened to some of your podcasts before so I think even the last couple of weeks I've been asking I suppose your uh, opinion and direction on certain running so I suppose for me I think the last time we talked it was about me trying to get over that 30 kilometer mark up and around the mountains Um, so the plan is for me is to build um, for some reason, I don't have a drive now. Now, that may change to do a flat marathon, but there's just something in me, I suppose, I want to get a marathon up the mountain. So what do you think should be my next step forward and how to achieve a mountainous marathon? Well, maybe if you keep doing what you're doing, because mm. it seems to be working, and then when we get the opportunity, the two of us might do the Dublin Mountain Way from Tala over to Shankill. It's oh, yeah. just slightly over the marathon distance. Right. I'm judging it off. i done 30.5k there about two weeks ago up the mountains. And i done a second 30k, but they're two very different runs, even though they're around the mountains. And the one thing I had to look at was the ascent, the amount of meters of ascent that I had. One of the days, there was a much bigger ascent. I'd done more hills on one route. And then the second route had more gradual hills. But by the end of it, the overall ascent didn't actually... Uh, compound to make the one the week before so there's less muscle soreness um I, I tried to keep the body moving i think it was about four or five hours it was a slow steady pace um i know we talked about before the downhill what do you reckon then on the downhill uh training so for building up the quads i'm conscious of because going back to the hell week now that was obviously because i had a lot of weight on my back and i probably exhausted myself too fast too soon but the stride and the overstride on the downhill like, do you take smaller, quicker steps? Or are you trying to take overstrided and try to get a, a lengthening on the hamstrings and absorb on the quads? Well, with the downhill, first of all, I'd say you have to introduce it gradually. Mm. If you haven't done much downhill, I do easy downhill running, first of all. And what you've got to be careful with is when you mention the stride is if you put the leg too far in front of you, there's that breaking force. So you're hitting the ground yeah. with, with more impact. If you're leaning too far forward, you start to build up momentum that you might not be able to control, especially if your legs aren't conditioned to yeah. it. And then your speed is going to get faster and faster and you won't be able to stop yourself. So what you're really trying to condition with the downhill running is, as you mentioned, your quads. So it's that eccentric loading that you get in it. And what you're really trying to do is stop yourself from falling and collapsing into the ground. So there's tension in the legs mm -hmm. as you're absorbing the impact. So you need to have what we call muscle integrity that they're strong enough to be able to do what you want them to do. So for the beginning, I would say with the routes that you're doing would be to just not ignore the downhill because when you're somebody who is highly motivated with your training, mm -hmm. you see the downhill as being easy. You perceive it as being recovery because the uphill is where the actual effort is mm. so you've got to get out of that mindset that the the downhill is training as well and i would say with regard to your stride just keep it short fast stride so that's your stride frequency yeah will be increased they're going to match what you're doing but you have to remain in control yeah. of your of your pace and then 
be looking ahead so you're aware of obstacles that can be potholes, rocks, or yeah. it can be movable obstacles such as dog walkers. If somebody has a dog on a long lead, because you're moving so fast, they mightn't see it. They're not expecting you to be there. Yeah. And then you've also got turns, sharp turns. You've got to be careful with those. So you just have to, suppose it's a skill that you have to kind yeah. of learn along the way. Yeah. And because it's the Dublin Mountains you, you're training in, in a lot, you ha- you in order to get in the ascent that you want to get, you means you're going to have a lot of descending as well. Yeah. So what you could do there is to lessen the amount of recovery time you're getting is you could try and do the longest uphill you can get and then by watching your heart rate, which you know what your recovery heart yeah. rate is, come down and before it reaches the level where you're recovering too much, you turn and you go up again. So it's like going up steps of stairs. You're going up yeah. three steps, you're coming down two, you're going up three, you're coming down two. So that's giving you a bit more a bit more of a climb. And another tip would be for maybe if you're, if you're climbing something that's really, really steep and you're finding it a challenge, like say if, you, if you're going up Lugan Aquila in Wicklow, when you start to feel that it's a lot of effort, just stop what you're doing and turn around and look at where you've come from. Yeah. And when you can see the height that you've gained, how much you've achieved in that space of time, that in itself will help to motivate you to go on. So like in life, it's always good to look back yeah. at, at what you have done and that does help you going forward. So I think what's unique about a mountain is that it's very, very easy to see how much you have achieved yeah. just by turning and looking behind you. And I'd be an avid hiker and uh, I can't help but bring some level of fitness into the hike and I make sure we tackle a few tough mountains. I've also met a few guys out doing trail running and they'd use the poles. Have you ever used the poles or is there any situation you could see yourself using poles or finding no, benefit? No, I don't use the poles, but they, there are benefits into using these things in races. But I would tend to use as little as possible in training. Make the training hard mm. and that then should make the fight easy. Yeah. So I find that after training as well, that uh, people overdo their recovery and maybe they are recovering while they're training. Uh, what I mean by that is wearing these compression socks and yeah, yeah. wearing all you know would you put much faith in, in the new massage guns now that have become very affordable and the compression pants well I suppose I would but there's a time and place for everything when you're training you're looking at bringing on training response so you're looking at, at damaging the muscles as when the muscles are to repair with the proper rest and nutrition that it, it becomes more able to do what you want it to do and part of that, the adaption process is the inflammation that happens and how the body, and that's sending a signal to the brain so the brain can direct the nutrients to the area to help it recover and grow. So if you're artificially recovering, you're taking away the training response that you've been working to get. So I would limit the amount of times I'd use something like that. Though when you mentioned the compression uh, pants, yeah. If I was looking at, maybe depending on where I am in the season, if I was looking at increasing my fitness, so I'm walking on my heart and lungs, that might be a time when I would try and speed up the recovery of my legs. But if I was looking at walking on my, my strength to be able to climb better or descend better, then I would do the, I suppose the minimum dosage that would bring me on a training response I would be feeling a bit of a bit of pain. I would need a recovery, but it wouldn't stop me from being able to train the next day. Yeah. And in order to progress your training, you have to be able to layer 
the appropriate sessions on top of each other. So we do the training so we can do the training. So if you do too much today, that means you can't train tomorrow. Mm -hmm. What you should be doing the next day will be affected because you haven't had that bridge between the hard session and all okay. to get yeah. there. So it's how you layer them. Yeah. And what about then in nutrition? I see certain supplements, certain proteins, some supplements that uh, kind of are supposed to help um, with lactic tolerance or buffering. But I think almost what you said there about the body has a natural process. And the body the, will adapt the, to what yeah. you, the stresses you put it under. Yeah, so I, I kind of do think sometimes with when sports supplementation comes out, um, I kind of feel by and large most of them are um, a little bit of truth that gets them in the door and a whole lot of placebo. Um, I don't think anything, I think I've, I've seen one or two supplements, but I was just wondering, would you take anything that you think helps or have you found any research that would help? But I don't so much take a supplement, but I would take what I would call maybe an addition. Mm. So as much as possible, I get everything that I can get through eating a wide variety of, of foods yeah. and foods that we know to be good, uh, unprocessed as much as possible. Now, I do eat processed foods as well, but yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when I'm training, I'm more conscious of what I do take. So right. one thing I do take in addition to my diet to, to propose, help add extra nutrients to the recovery process would be supplement called joint I'm calling it a supplement now yeah. it's called <laughs> joint complex by Revive Active right. and that helps with the healing process so in the evening time I would take that before I go to bed so I'm not supplementing Yeah, I'm kind of adding something to it Okay. so, so I do try and get everything uh, that I need from the diet and the way you got to look at it is if, if you've done a session where you know that you've really really worked your legs and they're going to be sore from uh, some downhill running then you need to be getting protein in to help repair yeah. the muscle damage. So I look at protein being like cement. And if you can get it in immediately after you've been training in a pre-digested form, which would be a drink, could be chocolate milk, or that's when you might yeah. take your uh, a protein supplement, that's also helping you hydrate as well. If I did something that was really high intensity, like say I was doing reps on the track or, or running fast, then I would be looking at replenishing f uh, fuel stores more so than rebuilding. Yeah. Now, I don't separate these things, but I'm just saying I, I'd have more emphasis yeah. Yeah. on one over the other. So I would say that the activity that you do will dictate how you recover. Yeah. And with regards adding in this kind of artificial means of, of recovery, I try and avoid them, mm. but I will use them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. And... I suppose the other thing that fascinates me and, and that's still very foreign to me because I haven't experienced it yet is that when you're doing the ultra and you're going long and you're going long distance and we touched on this off mic before um, for you psychologically when you hit a wall a barrier or a demon um, would you have a consistent mantra you would have in your head so if, I know for me if I'm running or fighting depending on the day sometimes whatever it takes for me to get over that point or time or distance could be a, a negative driver, but in a good way. It could be an aggressive kind of, I got to do this and it, it's a, a high energy thing. Sometimes it's a very uh, quiet word with myself, but it changes quite a lot. Do you find that, would you have one single mantra or mental state to get you over a distance or a hill or an injury or a strain? Well, nothing lasts forever. Mm. And there was a famous one by Shackleton where he said, it's endured and so we must endure it. Mm. And with a lot of these races that I, I would go to, I look at that as being my holidays. 
So, you know, I'm, a lot of times I'm paying money to be there yeah. and, you know, I want to enjoy being in the environment. So yeah. I wouldn't really be inclined to be dropping out of a race. I, I would keep going until that's it. You know, you're, you're not allowed to go anymore. Like mm. I was in, did a race in Australia back in 2009 and I had problems with my IT band. And that came on me fairly soon in the race. But that was my thinking, well, I'm not going to be in Australia again. So I decided, yeah, I'm, I'm going, to, going to enjoy this, look around me. Got some painkillers to kind of help help with the pain. And it just happened I was coming in towards a checkpoint and there was a cameraman there. So I said, I don't, I don't want to be caught walking. So I started to run and the painkillers had kicked in. So then I, I was okay. Yeah. And I started running again. And uh, yeah, so, that was that was it. So at what point then would you, have you ever been faced with a, a realistic option of uh, having... Uh, Maybe there was a possibility, you know, that you might not complete the race. Was there a point where, you know, in any race where you thought this might happen, my knee is going to go, your ankle could be fractured. Was there any times that you felt that it might not, you might not finish? No, well, that hasn't happened yet. Well, maybe the the race in Australia, I thought I could have gotten timed out and that might have happened if I kept walking. But you would have completed it. But it yeah, but if it had been something serious that was going to cause long-term damage, then I'd stop. Mm. No question about that. Like, if I was at the break in something or I had a stress fracture, yeah. I, I would stop. Yeah. If I thought it was that bad, I would stop. Like, with me, with the IT band, that was IT band will hurt you more when you're on, on, the, on the downhill, mm. but then when you're going up, it's okay. So, I just persevered when I was on some of the uh, some of the downhills. And then I was, um, I was listening to one or two of the podcasts and. I'm not finished it yet. I'm actually ju- I'm a podcast jumper. I'm, and, and I've, you would have to turn the tables. Now. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> again, I'm fascinated and I, I love, uh, especially when I'm, I feel like I'm getting uh, passionate about another hobby. So since I have a peer, which you would be to me in, in this, it's great to kind of pick your brain. When, when you're running, uh, I suppose, how, how has your mindset changed now as opposed to maybe 10 years ago because you're running a long time so the stuff you must say to yourself in the moment of the run versus what you say now has that changed well i suppose now i don't have the same hunger that i had before because i don't need the races as, as much as i did like say when, when, when i won my my first national championship that was great but then the second time it was almost as if i was going to defend it more so yeah. than, than win it so it was yeah. nothing new so it wasn't the same and then the third time when, when I went up I felt I kind of had to go because I didn't want to just not turn up I wanted to let you know if somebody's going to beat me I yeah. wanted somebody to beat me and that's how I was thinking so I felt that it was going to give me that bit of pressure to have to be there rather than just doing it for the sake of uh, wanting to do it now it would be totally different when I was running on the national team because every time I did that it was like it was the first time because it was like you know fight or having to yeah. think it's going to be the last fight and I would have preferred to be finishing last in one of these big international events representing Ireland than finish first in a local race or a national yeah. championship yeah. so there's that different uh, mentality I think when I was doing it for myself the appeal kind of went but when you feel you have a bit of responsibility then I suppose things going to change then so how competitive would you say you are now? Because you've you've some of the only I've only known some of the races you've done. Um is the goal 
ever to beat a competitor or is it to beat your own time? Like what's the drive to complete a, a race now? Well, I never take part in a race. I'm going out to try and win it. Yeah. And I never just go to an event and say, I'm just using this to train and run. I don't like that yeah. kind of uh, mentality. I'm in it to win it, regardless of what kind of condition I'm in. If, if I'm paying money to sign up for a race, yeah, I'm going to try and win. And then what, what do you see then? It, it, like a fighter has a lifetime. Um, their body will break down, bar a few um, anomalies. You'll get your Bernard Hopkins professional boxer going to the age of 49, 50 years of age. Um, boxers kind of have a finite depending on how well they look after themselves, you know, somewhere between 30 and 40 years of age, uh, where do you see yourself, I suppose, running-wise in the coming years? Well, I would feel I'm kind of semi-retired, mm. but I still want to get yeah. another couple of shots. So I'm, I'm still training, training hard, and I'd be putting in at least 100 kilometres a week regularly. Wow. And I'm kind of experimenting with some of the stuff I'm doing, so I'm, I'm trying to be more economical with okay. the way I, I, ma- I manage my training. And I'm trying to, you know, just do stuff that I know is getting results, and I'm tracking exactly what I'm doing to see yeah. what help, uh, what kind of sessions my body responds best to. And with the ultra running, there's there's still a lot of unknowns as to what it might uh, do to your body, and there's a lot of fad diets that come out over the last couple of years which have yeah. avoided. Yeah. And I can see that they're having a negative effect on on people with their their bone health and yeah, yeah. Affecting people in other ways, you yeah. might see that yourself. That we get disordered eating rather yeah. than eating disorders. Yeah. What you call it? Yeah, well, well, yeah. People trying to get a, a short term win, if even if they get the win or the performance for the sake of a long term uh, health consequence. Um, health first. You yeah. should be a healthy person first, and then fitness. Fitness follows that. Fitness is a bonus, mm. but you have to be healthy. I think the one crossover, like you were asking me, the team of some of your questions was the crossover between running and combat training. Um, and the way I see it is that I think we probably have the same probably core values when it comes to competing on sport and just overall health is that they all mesh in together like as you said even when it came down to the compression pants to help you know boost circulation or certain supplementation or additions to your food the body has natural processes and we need to kind of you know endorse them and kind of let them run through their full uh, potential rather than trying to take on like if it you know and you know, some people taking androgynous uh, hormones, which is illegal, obviously. But they're also, you know, people taking actions to let these process to, to assist these processes. But the way you would think is is probably get to know your body, be healthy. You know, get good sleep, good food, and and then yeah, that's very true. Like if if you're using these uh, recovery aids strategically, mm. but what's happening now is you've everyone's looking for. The, the shortcut yeah is say the magic bullet and and that's what's yeah. happening so they're relying too much on technology yeah and that's a lazy way to to try and improve and I hear people when they talk about ultra running saying how it's 90 percent mental and 10 percent physical or something like that <laughs> but you have to ha- you, you have to do the work before you can yeah you can have that mental side of it I think a lot of people don't see that like you know if uh so, for instance, like I wouldn't see all of the work and all of them hundred miles you do, but I've seen, I suppose, all the stuff you've achieved. Even when I, I was looking up online and all the stuff you'd you'd done, it's very easy to kind of, um, if you had to come out with a quick slogan like you know, you know, it's only ninety percent this and ten percent this. It's very easy for someone that has no idea about sports to buy into that because, and as you said, there's lots of people out there online that have uh, credentials, but they're not coaching the right way or the information is a bit 
it's not accurate they're not seeing they're not seeing as you said the plain simple thing they're not putting the hours in and the work and people are assuming because they're endorsing a supplement or a product that this is uh, the content of a great athlete rather than really the icing on the cake it's one very small part you know especially uh, especially the ultra the ultra just fascinates me because uh, th- that level of the, the time and the level of running like the 24 hour race is fascinating uh, I don't know where you would even start to create a plan to train for a 24 hour race well if you've travelled to Korea with all <laughs> those stopovers and fights <laughs> you you must be used to uh, sleep deprivation in some way so. yeah yeah, and and that's what it is it's been able to manage sleep deprivation and I got soiled right there a few moments ago but when you mentioned about progressing from the 30 kilometres or that mm. if you can run 30 kilometres and not suffer any biomechanical problems that you are able to train again the next day or the next day yeah that means you're doing something right so so it's like in your car if if your tracking is off in the car you know you're going to damage your tours and the longer you go with that problem it's it's going to create more problems so if you can do 30k and do 20k a few days afterwards obviously some something is right yeah so then it just down it comes down to your recovery between training sessions so yeah. you're maintaining that muscle integrity and maybe and helping them to adapt to be able to do more of a workload so it takes them longer to break down and then you're getting the fuel in mm. then there's no limit to really how far you can yeah. go once you start to adapt the pacing to get the pacing uh, economical and you can ration out your fuel source for the distance you want to go. Well, as you said, they're economical uh, mechanics. The one thing I was very aware that I was doing was collapsing under my stride. So my hips, uh, I found, I remember we were chatting about making sure the posture was correct. Because it's very, very easy and very convenient to run uh, with the wrong posture. And the minute I pushed the hips forward, shoulders back and up, you know, posture was a little bit more upright. The, the firing of the muscles just hit slightly differently. Different, it, it, the smallest movement just hit. And I remember just on that hill last week, um, thinking, okay, this is what I have to practice a little bit more consistently. The discipline um, of just the simplest thing. As I'm at the saying, this does have to be in a, a table turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we both learned something. Yeah, learned this is probably today. My, my longest interview now in, uh, ever. <laughs> Now, you mentioned books. Can you recommend any books relative to what we've been talking about? Just if somebody, you know, wants to look at anything a little before. Yeah, I would recommend. I have, I'd be a big advocate of Audible. Um, So for me, everything nearly has the team of uh, quite intense books, which I kind of like, but then in equal measure, very funny books because I need that balance in my life. But training wise, there's one I seen um, or I have on Audible, uh, training for the uphill athlete, which I really like. Uh, the brother put me onto this. It's a great book if you have a background in health and fitness. I was just going to say that because the last day I was here, you showed me that book, yeah. and it is complicated. Because yeah, it's it can a very be. very good book. Yeah. It's probably two or three books mixed in together. Yes, yeah, now, and it seems like something that you'd see maybe on an academic. Yeah. But what I think is it will happen with, with with a book like that is you get somebody who will buy it, they'll flick through the first few pages, yeah, and they'll go into yeah. the training plans, yeah, and they'll try and just run the training plans. Definitely, but like that it, look that I I must actually get a copy of that. That looks fantastic. Yeah, like so as I said, like my brother had got it and he um 
that's the one with Killian Journey and, yeah, and his coach. Yeah, yeah. and and you know they're they're giving you data driven information, um, which I enjoyed. But even now, I had to find I was going back to some of my old. God, when I became just a fitness instructor many moons ago, I was going back to some of my old notes, thinking, "Jesus, okay, I had to think about going back over different energy systems that you wouldn't have talked about." In but those head. things haven't changed. That's yeah. the thing about it, though. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. And I suppose the approach to training, and I suppose one thing they highlight in that book is uh, individuality. The, yeah. Um, they're so, like, and they're very good. I, I like the way they're kind of open with it, and they, you know, I love the analogy of. Even with my fighters that, it, you know, people's using, say, genetics as an argument is that we're all just this big chessboard and genetics is this chessboard. How far we can go left, right, back and forth. There's still a huge amount um, that's up to our own decision making process. And in that book, I kind of like the way they kind of said, listen, it's up to you. And what you realize is the guys have been mountain climbing and running since the age of five and six. They're not just yeah. someone that took it up at the age uh, later on in life. And not to say it can't be done. Ha- no, but, but you have to accept that. Yeah. that that's a very important yeah. point. There's one I started only recently, the the Matthew McConaughey book. Um, I just seen him on one of the shows, and I didn't know he's such a big advocate for um, talks, university talks, inspirational talks, and speeches. And I got it, and it's a bit of a thing you'd listen to it in the car, but not a uh, listen to such a crazy life th- that he has. But other than that, though, I'd kind of listen to a lot of uh, non-fiction, uh, a lot of adversity. I'd seem to like that kind of running team of people. Um, I generally feel good when I read or see a film of someone overcoming something. I think that's the the, the algorithm for every successful movie and book. Like, there's a reason why Rocky <laughs> one through four is still watched today because they've got the rhythm, they've got the algorithm right. They know, they understand the basic human nature of people love to see, as much as people do begrudge, people love to see people get to the next level. And what we mentioned earlier about hobbies, I think that the way we we're just kind of thrown into this whole lockdown mm. scenarios is the people who didn't have hobbies or didn't have yeah. something else are the ones who suffer the most yeah. even if it's if it's just you know, going for a walk that's your hobby uh, but it's those that don't have something else and there's no Buddha saying the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the next best time to plant is now yeah. so I think it is important to do something and it's very easy to say well Sure, everything is closed. There's nothing yeah. we can do. We can't join a kickboxing club. We can't play yeah. golf. No, but you can prepare yourself when they do open. Yeah. So if you're inactive, get out walking. Yeah. Extend your walk. 100%. Go walking to new places. And then you can go and do the things that you might have wanted to do, but you didn't feel yeah. fit enough to do. It, it's difficult to get someone to have a, a default position um, that it, becomes positive especially in you know covid it's very hard to stay positive like i found it difficult um unless someone has practiced defaulting back to a positive mindset and a driven mindset and being able to self-motivate the simplest things as you said about food and other uh, different things people are always looking for the magic bullet there is none and in in anything in any uh that's why i think a lot of a lot of sports that we talk about they intersect quite a lot because we have to practice practice what we preach like if i see more people i see more people putting positive stuff on instagram um, and i know for a fact they don't practice it <laughs> um and it doesn't make me angry it makes me feel a bit sad it makes me think you know i'd love to help a person out um you know if you could um but i find there's there's too many people uh, i think just that don't practice what they preach um and preach a little bit maybe too no, often no because they're doing it for the wrong reasons yeah, they're, yeah. they're they're doing it yeah. for 
likes and yeah. shit, and, and that's it. It's it's that recognition. And I think we're in that world now. We're in that cyber world where where we've been in a long time. But I think it will come back around to um, true, I suppose, uh, true emotions and, you know, people's own beliefs rather than trying to get likes and trying to validate their own confidence. For me, confidence only comes from uh, striving and struggling and getting through small little things and sometimes big things. And then you come out to the other end and then that makes, I suppose, legitimate confidence. But um, yeah, it's fascinating because I'd spend most of my time on social media, you know, for business, for the club and for personal use and using it. And I use it in an appropriate way. I don't find myself, and I'm not against it, but I don't find myself being that type of person that says, I'm going to take a week off social media because it doesn't get in on me. Uh, Just as you mentioned that, I find it, I don't know, kind of strange or fascinating that somebody will announce on Twitter that oh, I'm taking a break off Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I wish yeah. I was important enough yeah. to actually yeah. have to say that. I've thought about that and that's why I don't even let it's, that come in on me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a strange one, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's... Announcing they're taking a break off it. Just, just don't use it. Yeah, yeah. And it's... Yeah, I don't know... I don't know what it is. I definitely think I remember uh, my godson, so my friend, uh, his son, and I remember him yeah, it was actually a few years ago talking to him about social media because as he was growing up, uh, he would have been on social media and he's a very smart kid and he learned quite fast that you can't intertwine confidence and your morality and politics in with social media because it's the wrong place to do it. You, you know, you don't have leaders, you have influencers and they're not all leaders. I'm sure there is a few there, but leaders are a different ballgame altogether. Leaders put themselves in front of danger to protect you that's what a leader does and then doesn't look for recognition they just do it they don't want you know uh, likes or now there's nothing wrong with that i love putting a post up of a bit of running and a few people put a like up but my day is not ruined uh if no one likes it or if someone has a bad comment and so that's fascinating as well because we're in that weird time of communication and and you need to know how to control it like i've we do a lot of online courses so you know I find that the phone the iPad that's all very very handy tools Yeah, but you've got to be careful with how you use your time so you can entertain yourself you can annoy yourself yeah. or you can educate yourself yeah yeah. well I think what you just said there is perfect I, that's exactly I would never not never political I'd never post anything political even if my beliefs were strong in an area I think it belongs in a certain uh, a certain room or a certain place, or it can be said in a certain place, but it's generally entertainment. It's entertainment, and it's a break away from reality, and it's fun. And if it's anything outside of that, or educational, um, if it's outside of that, I just I wouldn't entertain. I would just swipe because I I know people, uh, friends that would get caught up quite a lot. Like their days are dictated by what some stranger has said, some unfact checked point, and their days are gone. And I kind of feel like oh, what a waste of a day. What a waste of a day. And actually, your day is nearly gone now, so <laughs> we better uh, call a halt to this. Yeah. This is what happened was the last day that yeah. we were talking, and I said we should have had the mics on, but <laughs> I'd be conscious that if somebody starts listening to this, you know, they might make it to Cork before they actually get to the end of it. So I think, well, like, thanks very much for your time. No problem and, at all. Uh, I really enjoyed it. No, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Was, uh, so look, until the next time, so ho- hopefully I'll get back out to your gym in the not-too-distant future and we go for a cup of coffee or something. Absolutely. Or 
we can get out for a run the trails when like I think only a bit further away from the hills than you are so yeah maybe that'll be the next thing we can do when when the restrictions are lifted I'll give you a shout yeah hopefully the restrictions are gone let's do a run let's be a doer let's not talk actually before we go you have a website Uh, yeah if you check out www.championtieboxingk1.com it's a bit of a mouthful championtieboxingk1.com and yeah, you can have a look at what we do and who we train. And we're generally, look, I've talked quite a lot about athletes and performance, but the ethos of the gym is that there's about 95% of the members are normal people just like me, ordinary people just like me that just want to do exceptional things through hard work. Very simple. So I would train more absolute beginners that want to lose a little bit of weight, um, but I would put the same passion into them if they echo that passion back. Even if they just want to lose a pound, you don't even have to fight. So I think for us, that's the nuance. For me, that's what I enjoy doing is probably training passionate people, irrespective if they ever step into the ring. So check it out if you get a chance. Uh, Thanks very much, John. Okay, Mark, thanks very much. And I'll chat to you soon. Now, if you enjoy this or any of your podcasts, you might consider leaving a review or passing it on to a friend. And until next time. 